Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Molly Taylor Pileski, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jody Campbell about her book, At the First Table Food and Social Identity in Early Modern Spain. Dr. Campbell is professor of history at Texas Christian University. She's written extensively on Spanish drama, royal history, and women's history. Her first book was published by Ashgate in 2016, I'm sorry, 2006, and it's titled Monarchy, Political Culture, and Drama in 17th Century Madrid, Theater of Negotiation. She's also an editor of the volume Women in Port, Gendering Communities, Economies, and Social Networks in Atlantic Port Cities, 1500 to 1800, which was published by Brill in 2012. The book we will discuss today looks at food as a mechanism for performance of social identity in early modern Spain. Jody, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Could you start by telling us how you came to write at the first table? Of course. Um, in fact, I, I feel like I need to start with a bit of a disclaimer because I'm, I'm not a food historian. Um, I am a little bit now, but I didn't think of myself as that going in. Um, and I also feel sort of needing to explain or make some sense out of why did I write a book on theater and then a book on food? Because uh, I'm also not really a theater historian. But what they have in common, they seem very different. But in both cases, I'm really curious about how people understand their relationships with each other, um, how they understand their place in society and expectations they have of other people. So theater is a way of looking at that. And then food is a way of looking at that. Um, so I, I think the moment, if there was a moment when this book started, it was um, reading, I think, I think this anecdote comes from uh, Patricia LeBalm's article on Marin Sanudo, the, the Venetian um, merchant or patrician um, who, who left an extensive diary. And she starts an article with, with this an example of a Venetian official who accuses, he's in a, a spat with a, with a colleague, and he says, in public, you eat alone at the table. And that, right, that, that's like the most powerless, the worst thing you can say to someone. It's the most horrifying insult. And I kept using that in conversation and in class, like, look, look, it's funny how that works as a great insult, right? You can say that the meanest thing you can say about someone, you eat alone at the table. You're not connected. Nobody respects you. Nobody trusts you. And so I started thinking, like, what a great example. There are more examples like that. Isn't it interesting how food and the sharing of food becomes this public performance of what kind of person you are? Um, so I had that in the back of my head and started looking for other examples and kept finding more and more and more. And then I thought, you know, I could pile all these together and have a book. And it's a wonderful book as well. Incredibly readable and full of these lively anecdotes. Um, you start off with a great section, which in my mind, as somebody who also works on early modern food history, I think is not just a great introduction to early modern Spanish food, but uh, early modern European food in general. And could you tell us about some of the basic food practices and beliefs in Spain? Sure. There's um, Food history has, has developed in so many interesting ways just in the past few decades, and we're learning more and more about this. And people really started looking first at just basic nutrition, you know, what kinds of food do people eat? And then we've gotten more sophisticated in terms of the symbolism and how do we understand food and how do we prepare it and serve it? Uh, but just basically, there are, you know, bread is the most important ingredient. Bread and wine are essential. Um, there are, what, I think one of the most interesting details is there's a, a sense of a whole hierarchy of food that 
there are different kinds of food that are best suited to different kinds of people, right? It's, it's really not a matter of individual choice. You, you don't eat things that you happen to like. <laughs> You're supposed to eat things that are appropriate to the kind of person you are. So there are lots of models for this. Um, there are models that come from religion. There are certain kinds of foods that a good Christian eats. Um, there are models from medicine. There's a Galenic model of humors uh, that you should have um, you know, hot and, and wet and dry and cool things in a certain balance. And then there's this sense of hierarchy of um, the quality of different kinds of food. And it's this wonderful sort of visual vertical image that things closest to the ground are, are of lower quality and things higher up are better quality. So things with wings are the best, right? The things that fly um, are higher quality foods. So of course, peasants are supposed to eat turnips and carrots because those are under the ground. And, and then the wealthy, sophisticated people should be eating chicken or ideally game birds because those are higher up. Um, so again, if, if you're at a banquet uh, or any situation where you're, you're serving kind of different categories of people, you serve them different kinds of food. And again, not based on personal interest, but based on what kind of, of person they are. So there are all of these frameworks that kind of guide you towards what kind of foods you're supposed to eat. And then, and then seasonally, of course, and in terms of the liturgical calendar, um, there are things that shape your choices there as well. But there are all these frameworks that decide what kinds of foods are best for you. It's amazing how many different overlapping values there are in decisions about food. Right. And they, they're, they're overlapping and they're sometimes conflictive. Uh, like one of my favorite examples is, I mean, clearly there are levels of questions of status and, and you eat more and more sophisticated, more refined foods if you're wealthy and powerful. But if you have cases like, uh, I'm thinking monastic communities, where you have a group of people who are supposed to be dedicated to a, a simple religious Christian um, ascetic kind of lifestyle. And yet, uh, imagine if you have an abbot or, or a bishop or someone who's in a high religious position, you're also expected to behave like a noble and you're expected to behave like a man. And, and to be manly and noble is related to the, consum the consumption of meat, right? Powerful hot foods. But if you're a Christian, if you're a monk, you're not supposed to be eating meat. So you, you have to perform, find some way to perform both of these identities at the same time when they're directly in conflict. Speaking of conflict, while you were doing uh, your research for this, and, and you did a great synthesis of the Iberian scholarship as well as some of your own archival research while you were in Spain, did you find examples when people use food as a means of protest or uh, to be countercultural through what they ate, like um, instances where they went against what was prescribed in order to maybe change their social situation? Um, that's a great question. I wish I'd looked for that. <laughs> uh, not oh. <laughs> well, I was thinking even maybe to advance their, you know, as a, as a way of, of uh, performing social mobility as well, not just social stasis. Yes, but I'm, I'm, you're making me think now there might have been sort of more directly or kind of rebellious ways of doing that. Uh, but that would be a, that'd be a great thing to look for. Uh, lots of subtle. Oh, well, you know, what comes to my mind immediately is again, a religious uh, protest because of what you mentioned about um, monastic societies and things like that. But underlying it was kind of thinking about uh, your section on social status and how food choices could actually be constitutive of um, identity, not just um the performance of it, but actually enacting right. the status. Yeah, in, in subtle ways. And I'm not sure if that's, I would characterize that as rebellious, but um, 
I'm going to pursue that thread at some point because I like that idea of rebellious eating. Um, there's a wonderful, Christopher Kassan has a new book on food, religion, and communities, and he's got some great examples of fast breaking in Zurich where these people like public, publicly eating sausage during Lent. And you know, that's an active public protest that works really well with food. Uh, but in Spain, you have this a clear sense of social hierarchy. And, and people do try to work with that. And one of the, I guess the biggest theme of this book really is the way, I mean, all of us have categories of identity that, that we define ourselves with, right? We are siblings and we have an occupation, we're family members, we, we have an occupation, we have a regional identity, we have a religious identity and a political identity. And those things matter to us, even though we're in a, a society that largely values equality and says we treat everyone the same, regardless of those, those boxes. Early modern Spain is a world where those boxes really, really matter, legally and socially and culturally. Um, so it, it's all the more important to portray, to make sure those are visible and to act them out and show who you are. And what I'm trying to do is to show how food is always part of that. So you can use it to reflect who you are, and then you can also use it to leverage who you are, which is a, which your question is getting at, um, in this in in a in a context in the 16th and 17th centuries when there is some social change, you don't have really clear categories. Um, you have a a very fuzzy kind of of noble. You have lots of different ranks of nobility, so it's not terribly clear. Just glancing at someone, what level they might be. You have kind of a new urban elite who have a lot of money, even if they don't have an elite heritage, but they can present themselves in certain ways. So people can certainly leverage that with food and, and display their sophistication. Even if you don't have noble title or noble background, you can say, yeah, but I have money. I have connections. I have connections with trade. I have education. I can make these careful food selections and I can, I can set my table in a really elaborate way and look even better than the nobles. I, I can put on this performance and establish myself in a community. Um, I think you're absolutely right that, that uh, when you talked about the differences with today, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We do uh, present who we are through what we eat, those choices. We are what we eat. Um, but it's certainly not the same as in this prescriptive culture where, where there is such a strict hierarchy and such strict expectations for what that means. Um, you mentioned that there is kind of room for change in the 16th century. And I was wondering if you could talk about how food practices in Spain changed over the course of the early modern period. Ooh, so many interesting ways. Um, partly because there's a social change that's happening that you have, again, a, a, the rise of an urban elite and some more wealth and sophistication that doesn't clearly align with um, the system of nobility, the people who are wealthy aren't necessarily the people who are noble. Um, and there's also introduction of new ingredients, right? New spices. Um, the rise of sugar in the 16th century is a huge change, that sugar becomes more widely available, um, or chocolate and ingredients from the new world. Um, the rise of table manners. So with all of these things, there are these interesting kind of waves that you can see of, of a new ingredient coming in, like sugar. And then, so elites get a hold of it at first, like we're elite because we are using sugar in, in all of our ingredients. And you see these recipes because, you know, sugar is this sophisticated, far away, expensive thing. So you put it on everything. Um, all of these recipes start including sugar. I have this great recipe for like roasted onions with cinnamon and sugar. Because <laughs> you have sugar and you're going to put it on your onions, um, <laughs> which I haven't tried at home. But, uh, but this, if you want to be sophisticated in the 16th century. Um, so 
people use that to demonstrate their elite status. And then it becomes a more common trade item and it becomes more accessible and more available. And then if everyone's using it, it's not quite so special. So the second phase is to say, well, okay, we're all using sugar, but we're going to use it in sophisticated ways. We're going to make like fine glazes and we're going to, to dress it up in certain ways. Um, or the same thing with, with other spices or even table settings. Once a thing, at first it's very exclusive and then it moves to being a little bit more available. So then you just change how you use it. Okay, we all have access to chocolate, but um, some of us are going to serve it in fine china cups uh, where, where others aren't. And so you you, you change first sort of the volume of what you have, have, have access to and then maybe the sophistication with which you use it. Uh, so basically sugar is one of the, the, the clearest examples uh, various kinds of spices, things that are coming in from Indonesia, especially, or the Americas, um, those give people sort of new ingredients to play with and use in their their demonstrations of, of wealth and sophistication. That's very interesting. First, it's the thing itself, and then you kind of have all these trappings around it, and the goods and the preparation. The exactly, yes. It's yeah. the thing and then the style, yeah. Um, you also talk a fair bit about... Um, how Spain is like other parts of early modern Europe at this time and their patterns of food consumption. And I'm also wondering, you know, yes, where does Spain fit in that kind of general European food culture of the time? And then how is Spain particular? Those are really important questions. And I wish uh, I had initially intended to develop, especially the um, the this, this similar question, I, I wish I'd had a chance to explore. I touch on it some in the book. Um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there in that you know, you're adding work on Germany. We've got some really great research on France and England. There's still, for those of you out there thinking about food history, there, there there's so much room for a greater synthesis to start putting those together. Um, so I think the one of the, the biggest differences, as anyone working on Spain would recognize, um, is the heritage of Muslim and Jewish culture. In Spain. That's something the rest of Europe doesn't wrestle with as much. And it's something that is so powerful in terms of, of cultural identity and especially food culture in Spain, because you have uh, in the 15th century, this a population that includes a substantial number of Muslims and Jews um, who are then gradually or abruptly forced to convert so that for the 16th century, then we, we have a, um, a society that is ostensibly entirely Catholic, but with lots of, of recent uh, forced conversions that you don't entirely trust these recently converted Muslims and Jews. And the catch with that is that um, you can't look at someone and tell what their faith is, right? We, we think of, uh, as modern Americans, we think of faith as a very internal, personal thing. Um, and it is, but it also has external signs. So if you're in early modern Spain, and it's very important to religious and political authorities to think of everyone being properly Christian, because if you're not, that's a threat to everyone. It's not just a threat to your salvation, but everyone's. Um, so there's lots of, of watchfulness of making sure everyone's behaving properly and taking communion and going to church and behaving like a good Christian. Well, how can you tell? One of the, the best ways you can tell is through food. And because Jews and Muslims have very distinct, visible dietary practices, um, most visible being either fasting or the rejection of pork. And so Spaniards start being really attentive to those things or watching what their neighbors are eating. And there are dozens and dozens of, of inquisition cases. Um, there's a wonderful book, um, kind of cookbook called The Drizzle of Honey, that examines inquisition trials 
of people accused of maintaining Jewish practices to look at their, because inquisitors look in their kitchens. Uh, one of the best ways of, of understanding cooking practices and techniques and recipes from these inquisition trials. Um, so there's lots, of, there's lots of that material that's available and there's lots that people have done with it. But it's still, especially if you work on other parts of Europe and you don't see, you're not accustomed to those patterns, the extent to which neighbors, neighbors are watching each other, servants are watching their masters, and there are all these things of, you know, uh, you know this, this, my neighbor doesn't eat pork. That's, that's suspicious. That alone, um, that the not eating pork is a powerful enough accusation to be, to be on trial by the Inquisition. So there are all sorts of cases. And I found myself like reading these, you know, case after case of people saying, oh, I offered her a sausage and she wouldn't eat it. Or I brought these people a gift of food and they wouldn't touch it. Uh, or I saw them preparing food on a Friday night, uh, which is a symbol of you know, preparing for the Sabbath the following day. And I thought, surely you would catch on. Like if, if you're pretending, if you're maintaining Jewish practices, you're pretending to be a good Christian. Wouldn't you just hang a ham in your kitchen? carry it around like here's my ham <laughs> I, I, I can do this and then the very next trial as i was flipping through these pages and thinking that, that the very next trial i read was basically that of someone saying you know these these people we never see them eat pork they've got a ham in their kitchen but it's been there for a long time and nobody's touched it <laughs> ah, ah so they were they doing that they're stupid uh, but they, they realized they had this, the, the possession and the consumption of ham becomes this really clear symbol that you're a good Christian. Um, and even today, like everyone knows, uh, if you've been to Spain, like ham is just this fundamental part of Spanish culture and it's, it's displayed everywhere. And I think that has to be some kind of a carryover from this, um, this, this religious context where it really matters to demonstrate that you're being a good Christian. Um, speaking of all these kinds of religious, I mean, some of them are taboos, but uh, bringing religion into the choices about food, your final chapter has this very enticing title, Vice and Virtue, Body and Soul. Could you talk about the relationship between food choices and um, how that was expected to affect somebody's uh, spiritual state? Yeah, I realized I was thinking so much in terms of social behavior and performance and collective meals and those kinds of things, all the sort of practical, secular kinds of contexts. And I thought, you know, there are, there are also lots of examples that are about people's internal state and how food reflects your soul or affects your soul. Um, so, of course, this kind of ties into the fasting again, that fasting in Jewish and Christian tradition is, is a very powerful part of religious identity that you fast during Lent, um, you display, again, um, and enact religious belief through, through sacrifice and fasting. Um, and so that is a form of virtue and, and dis displaying and enacting uh, virtue through choosing not to eat certain things and, and choosing not to eat at all in some cases. Um, so there's there's virtue that's expressed through the rejection of certain foods. Um, there's also an interesting trope that shows up in in literature um, over and over again about um, kind of stepping away from religion, but thinking of the corrupt city versus the wholesome countryside. That that the city, I mean, you can see cities as places of you know sophistication and wealth, but they're also sort of corrupt and sinful, um, and somehow that gets expressed in food also, where there are lots of people writing about Madrid in particular as the court city and saying, oh, you go to Madrid and everything is, is greasy and overspiced and it's, and it's badly prepared and, 
and, and it just reflects the the excess and the corruption. Whereas you go to the countryside and oh, there's good fresh bread and there's good simple vegetables and and everything clean, sparkling water and everything is clean and wholesome and virtuous in the countryside where it's dark and twisted and corrupt in the city. Um, and that shows up in, in the literary sources over and over again. Um, and one of my favorite examples is funerals as charity. Uh, coming back to the virtuous side, where if you want to, again, express yourself as a good Christian, you find ways of providing charity. Um, food is one of the most common ways of providing charity. And then funerals are one of the most prevalent ways of doing that. That when people plan funerals, they're expected to provide a meal uh, for neighbors, for the community, and for the poor, to the extent that people actually plan for that in their wills. And they provide they provide funds, they provide plans. Here are, I, I want funds designated for this many meals for the poor, I'm offering bread for the poor. Uh, so that, that offering of charity kind of is a, a last great Christian act upon your own death. I was providing food at these funerals. That's certainly a scary thought that it would be out of your control. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, so and that's the last thing you can decide is the food that gets offered in, at your funeral. Um, I was curious, and I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but where did you get the idea for the title of your book, At the First Table? What does that signify? Oh, I struggled with that. Titles are so hard. Uh, so I, I fought for just months and months trying to find a good title, and then I Actually, the, the scene that opens the book is an example of um, a 17th century merchant who leaves a diary. And so he, he's just describing the various kinds of activities. These are very, very short, dry kind of descriptions of what he does every day. But he also he always includes meals. Here are the people that I ate with. And he often mentions, you know, I, I was seated at the first table. Um, and he thinks, you know, that's a thing that's worthy of note. And I came across that phrase several times. I thought, okay, that clearly means something. And of course it does. Um, if you have any sort of larger collection of people, the most important people that you want to, to highlight and recognize in that group get seated at the first table. There's always a first table and maybe a second table and maybe lots more tables. Um, but in almost every circumstance, if you're doing any kind of public dining of significant people, you put someone at the first table. Um, and that's a way again of, of marking them as, as significant people. Uh, and the fact that the, the power of that choice is, is so interesting. There's another example of um, Cardinal Barberini, an Italian cardinal who's visiting in Spain, is traveling throughout the country. And one of his, one of the officials who's traveling with him writes this wonderful detailed journal of, of every step of their journey. And there are lots of meals as part of this. So I, I got lots out of that. Um, but at one point, there it's a small group and they're traveling and they're stopping in small towns late at night. Um, so often there are places that are like, hey, we weren't expecting you. We only have eggs and we have some leftover food here. They're fine with that. Um, they're not expecting lavish banquets every time they stop somewhere. But at one point they stop in a small town at an inn and, and the people are setting out some dinner for them. And like, we only have one table. And that, that was a crisis. You know, they can eat whatever bread crusts are around, but, but they only have one table. And there's this hour of negotiation. Over how can we manage clearly established that we've got three cardinals and then some other people and, and they can't share the same table. And so they, they managed to set the table in a certain way to set apart those three cardinals. But the, that distinction of the first table, that has to be there no matter what the other circumstances are. Oh, that's fascinating that the way they eat is more important than that they eat. <laughs> yes, exactly. The content, we don't care, but we have to sit, we have to have a first table. After I'm sure a long day of, of traveling and things like that. I'm sure <laughs> exactly. so this is all, this is all after. 
dark. Yeah, they've dragged themselves into this place, and they, but they have to have a first tale. That was really, you know, the fun of this book was, I, mean, I, I don't think it's making any real earth-shaking arguments. It's adding to what we know, but it was just so many stories like that. It's, it's here's food coming into this question of, of performance and interaction with people in so many ways all the time that there were so many just interesting anecdotes that I could put into it. Well, I completely agree with you. And this is what I find interesting of food history too. It is truly the universe, a universal need of humanity, but the way that you eat, what you eat is so telling about that specific culture's values, that specific individual's values. And it's such a rich topic for historians. Exactly. And it's, it's such a wonderful way of, you know, finding things that are familiar and, and yet such different contexts and such different meanings. Um, you know, and talking with my friends and family, I would tell these stories like, oh, yeah, it's, it's like the way that people disagree over, over turkey stuffing and Thanksgiving. You know, my family does it this way, your family does it that way. People hold on tightly to those things. And this is early modern Spain is clearly a different context, but it has that same kind of power of of, of your food choices and your um, the attention you draw to um, not just the, the hierarchy of eating but also commensality I think that's so interesting when I walk through for example a university dining hall now that 80 to 90 percent of the diners are eating alone and that you know Ooh. in the early modern period you would fight to be <laughs> there to have your meal included with your salary or to um, be sitting at a certain table with other people you know was such an important thing exactly and in, in fact in, in a lot of these communal settings I was really surprised how well, in, in every case if you're talking about a monastery or a university whenever you've got groups of people that are that are being fed, a punishment was to set someone alone. If, if you came in late or you didn't do your homework or you've broken whatever rule, you are set aside. You cannot eat with the rest of the group. And that is, again, one of the, the harshest things you can do to someone is sit them alone. Um, okay. Since we're um, historians here, um, I have to ask, are there any other favorite sources that you have that you haven't already touched on? Any other things that came you came across and you were just so tickled by or uh, really <laughs> opened a, a window to you, to the, for you, to the past? Oh, I think, I think those are my favorite stories. Um, again, where this all started with that, that Venetian official, you eat alone at the table. <laughs> that was just, that was such a great thing. Um, maybe the one I want to keep using as an example um, is Manjar Blanco, one of the the most what admired dishes of, of the late 16th, early 17th century that people mention all the time. And it's got to be just atrocious. Um, it's this, apparently, this is one of Philip II's favorite foods. It's this you take chicken breast, uh, finely shredded chicken breast and kind of mash it into a paste with rice flour and almond milk and sugar. So it's, it becomes this kind of sweet chicken mush. And that's like the best thing. <laughs> People are really excited about it. And I'm not, I'm not sure if it really suits the tastes of, of early modern Spaniards or it's just like those ingredients are all very prized things. You're using all the best things in the hierarchy. Um, and I honestly don't know because it sounds just ghastly. And I, I have not, you know, I've been working in this book for years. I have not had the nerve to try it yet. I can understand um, that. I really, it's not hard. I really need to, to make this thing and see how it is. Well, but, this is another, another uh, you know, distance with the past is we can't really recreate their palates either to, or uh, those specific ingredients have also changed in the last four or 500 years. So we wouldn't necessarily be able to recreate their experience anyway. 
Um, so that's why I don't try okay, well, to drive an excuse. kind of nasty sounding <laughs> historic recipes. <laughs> and I, that's another failing I think I have to admit is that, um, yeah, I'm not really a foodie. Every other food historian I know, like exper- experiments with recipes and they're thinking about, you know, the construction of the food itself and how it's put together and how people make it. Um, I just, I, I feel like I've neglected that part. I'm not really, I'm a cook, but I'm not a great cook. Um, I don't really experiment with historical recipes. And I want to with things like them on how to do uncle. But, but here I'm really interested in, you know, food as a symbol of something, how people use it to express their relationships with each other rather than the food itself. Yes. Well, but someday I will make that recipe. Oh, well, there's plenty of wonderful material to uh, make this a, <laughs> wonderful book and a whole book. Um, Now, uh, Dr. Campbell, we've taken up a lot of your time. And so my final question is just, what are you working on now? Um, That's a great question. I promised I would come up with a good answer to that. Um, Something along the same themes, not in terms of food, but I'm really interested in small towns in early modern Spain, small communities, because just because of the availability of archives, much of what we know comes from major cities, but most of the population is small towns. And, and I'm just, I'm so intrigued by looking through inquisition trials and criminal trials and things of the kinds of conflicts that come up between people and how they get resolved and maybe how those play out over time in a small community. I've, I've found some, I'll put in a plug for the, the Archivo Regional in Madrid, which has pulled together the archives of lots of small towns in the larger community of Madrid. And there's some fantastic material there. So I'm hoping, I'm starting to, to kind of dig through that to see what's there, what kinds of of relationships I can track in small towns. But it's the same kind of theme of how do people understand each other and how do people manage their relationships in the early modern world. Oh, well, that sounds like a wonderful project. I hope so. Well, at least you'll have fun learning about all these small towns in Spain and visiting them, I'm sure. That's the secret. (laughs) (laughs) It requires more time in Spain. That's right. Okay, well, Jody, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's a great honor, and I I hope to return the favor. I'm looking forward to seeing your book come out. Oh, thank you. Take care. Thanks.